service, everyone, and welcome everyone who's watching at home uh, here at Lord of Grace Lutheran Church. Uh, one thing, one thing I did this summer uh, because of COVID was that I finally got my Amazon Fire Stick connected. Or maybe I should say, I got my 21-year-old son to connect my Amazon Fire Stick. He said it was really simple and I could have done it myself if I wanted to. It was really not, no big deal. Um, so now I've got all these extra movies at my disposal. And uh, so I've been catching up on some films. Uh, not a ton, uh, but one night we were flipping through and there was one that showed up from 1993. And I'm always a softie for things from the 90s. So I looked at it, it was called Dazed and Confused. Anyone ever watch that movie? Dazed and Confused, I'll give you the premise. I had never heard of this, uh, but it was 1993 and in 1993, I was in college, I wasn't watching anything on TV or movies. I was just so busy with college life. Um, but the, the premise is, uh, it's the last day of school in some unnamed Texas town, 1976. And it just kind of follows through the day of these different people and what they do on the last day of school in 1976. So it's 1993 portraying 1996. And sort of the chief townie of them all is Matthew McConaughey. This was kind of his breakout role. And it was very disappointing. He had a shirt on the entire time. But, um, but part of it that shocked me, part of it that shocked me uh, wasn't the weird clothes. I kind of vaguely remember clothes like that. Um, it wasn't the universal, you know, highness of everybody around. Uh, it was the hazing. Uh, they had these really vivid scenes of hazing. And in one scene, uh, all, all the eighth graders, this is how it worked, we, all the eighth graders on the last day, they would get hazed on the last day of school. And so all the girls would come out, and they had this parking lot, and so all the girls were lined up on the, on the floor. They were all laying down in a big circle in this parking lot, and uh, all the other girls were doing all sorts of things to them, calling them names and pouring, you know, ketchup and stuff on them, uh, and then make them do various humiliating things. And there's this whole crowd from town that's just sitting there watching this. Like, this is no big deal. Teachers are walking by like it was nothing going on. And, uh, and you didn't have to do this, of course. They made that clear. You didn't have to go through the hazing. But if you wanted invites to the good parties, if you wanted the social life, you needed to do this. This was a requirement. And so everybody just sits there and watches this and thinks this is all just the most hilarious thing ever. Um, and that was for the girls. For the guys, it was paddling. And so you'd have high school seniors running around with these big paddles, some of them custom made, just beating up on these eighth grade boys. Uh, and Ben Affleck uh, plays one of this guy who apparently was like a, a dropout or something. He's like a fifth year senior. So he's like supposed to be 19 in the movie. He's running around. I mean, he's hunting them down. He's chasing them down at their houses uh, and, ju and just smacking them hard, smacking them. Well, there's this one kid. His sister, older sister, is kind of the popular girl in town. So uh, he thinks that her popularity will shield him, and instead that makes him more of a target. And so the Ben Affleck character goes running after him and uh, he dodges it and dodges it, and finally he's at a baseball game, 
and he's playing in the baseball game, and he knows there's no way out. There's only so many end exits from the field, and so at the end of this baseball game, he's got to get out, and there's Ben Affleck, and all these, and all these other guys, all these seniors, sitting there with these big paddles waiting for him. And eventually, he can't, he can't escape it, he can't dodge it, so he, get, he gets out of the baseball game, and they bend him over a car and just start beating him. And you can see him wincing and crying with every smack, and, he's just, and they're just wailing away. And then people are looking, and they're cracking jokes, and isn't this the funniest thing? And when it was done, uh, his friends took him home, and he was sore, and everybody just went on like that was normal. And uh, so what you had, me looking at it from my modern eyes, is you had a group of legal adults with weapons hunting down minors and, hitting, and assaulting them with weapons, and nobody called the cops, and nobody stepped in, and nobody said anything, and nobody tried to intervene. It's just the way it was. And I was shocked. Now, I'd heard about hazing on sports teams and in fraternities. Uh, I didn't know this was a general school thing. They didn't do it when I was a kid. Or maybe they did, and I just never got invited to the good parties for that reason. I don't know. But So then I went to the internet reviews. So then I went, went to the internet reviews. I know that could be kind of a black hole, but I went to the internet reviews. I think IMBD is what they call the thing. Um, and I'm looking at, at this site. It was full of people giving testimonies about how, and they all kind of followed along this lines. I graduated from high school in 1976, and this was totally how it was. This was totally realistic. This happened to all of us. And those were the good old days before cell phones and people got all worked up about this. Those, and I'm thinking, those are the good old days when adults beat children in public and didn't go to jail for it. How different we look at things, huh? We're a lot more sensitive to that stuff now. Um, I am thankful for that. If I saw, if I was driving by Crossroads Park down there by the ball field and I saw that happening, some kid bent over and some big 19-year-old smacking him, I'd call the cops. And if Miranda police didn't immediately bust them, I'd call the Miranda police chief. I'd call the legal defense fund for kids being beaten in the back of Crossroads Park. I don't know. I'd do something. But my guess is in 1976, if you came by and you called the cops and said, hey, Ben Affleck's beating up the eighth grader, he'd be like, ah, boys are boys, you know. Right? Besides, when you become a senior, you can beat those kids up. Isn't it worth it? And you realize how we become, how we can become desensitized to violence and incorporate it into our culture and make it normal and gang up to find ways to justify it and excuse it. I mean, it says something about human nature, doesn't it? That we can get our cultures to a place where we say, hey, I'll be friends with you and hang out with you, but first you gotta let me beat you first. First, I must inflict violence, then we can be friends. In ancient Rome, in ancient Rome, they had a similar attitude that these kind of things made you stronger and more manly. They taught that youth, young men in particular, needed to be accustomed to violence for their moral upbringing. Strong youth 
who didn't flinch when they watched people getting chopped up in arenas and fights and watch each other stab each other and all these horrible things. I suppose it made them all better at combat and made them a little bit less squeamish when they were, you know, hacking up the Germans or the Gauls or whoever was the latest target of Rome. So it shouldn't surprise us, I suppose, that they also took this attitude to criminal justice as well. That you had to kill and you had to torture and you had to enslave to keep law and order. It made us stronger. If you didn't, people would think they could get away with anything. And how would we keep people from going crazy and not just doing anything they wanted if we didn't, you know, hang them up and pound and nail them to the boards? I mean, isn't, isn't fear of torture the only reason people act good? You know, it's the same logic that says our children grow up soft because we don't make them suffer enough or we don't hit them hard enough or our schools are out of control because our teachers can't smack kids with rods and paddles. We tell ourselves that we need the violence, that it's unavoidable and natural and necessary, which doesn't say a lot about human nature, does it? I can't imagine what an alien would think if he came down to earth and learned about the ways we treat one another. The endless wars, the sacked cities, the, the killings and rapings and plunderings and all the celebrations at the plundering, and then the celebrations through history of the people who did that. Genghis Khan killed 30 million people. He's got a giant statue in his honor. What is most shocking about it is how ordinary it can become, how normal and unshocking. What should shock us most about the cruelty of those kind of state-sponsored state violence is how unshocked we can be, which is why I think we struggle to grasp in many ways what really happened on that night of Passover in 28 AD. Now, looking back over 2,000 years, we think of this as the pivotal moment of history. You know, this was the scandal of all scandals, the horror of all horrors. We see it through the lens of the videographers who reenact it. And when they do, they show it with huge crowds and throngs of people piling into the streets, all angry at the injustice. How could this Jesus be killed? And they're yelling and they're wailing. We imagine stadium-sized masses of people squishing together to chant for Jesus' execution and not Barabbas's. We imagine priests and pilots stewing and stewing and losing sleep over the horror of what they're going to do. But in reality, it was so ordinary that it would shock us. The space outside Pilate's balcony They've actually measured it. There are Bible nerds that measure this. They looked at the stones and how far it would be, how many people you could fit between Pilate's balcony and the next wall. It was about 40 to 50. That's it. And when everyone was there and they were all chanting for Barabbas, it was probably mostly just the priests and a few of their friends because it was 9 o'clock in the morning the peasants all had to go to work. And Pilate, he had lots of criminals. He killed them all the time. Sometimes by the hundreds, sometimes by the thousands. You know, we think he had 
we, we think, historians think, he probably crucified people every week. Everything from minor offenses to, like, stealing or uh, up, all the way up to treason and assassination. He killed people all the time, and he never thought twice about it. In fact, he was such a brutal killer, Rome moved him out of that job for that reason. How bad do you have to be? So Palm Sunday was big for sure. As Jesus was coming in, that was definitely big. People cheering, lots of people cheering for Jesus. Lots of people hopeful that he will change something. But by Passover, when he gets arrested, people had moved on. You see, there were a lot of messiahs then. And they all got whisked away by Pilate and the priest, and they all got sent off to the hill and killed like the criminals they were without much fanfare. It was ordinary, routine, largely unnoticed. It was just business as usual, the way it is. Another day in the empire. When Jesus was on that hill, it says he was crucified with thieves. Thieves, not murderers or rapists, thieves. Now, I don't know what they stole, but Rome did not have a value limit. It wasn't like, you know, if you only stole two chickens, it was a mystery, you know, it was a flogging, but eight chickens was the cross. We don't think they worked that way. So Jesus was put to an ordinary death with ordinary criminals in an ordinary process that went as the way it ordinarily did for thousands of people all over Rome every day. Very few people probably came to watch Jesus die, and it drew so little attention the Romans didn't even write it down in their books. Hannah Arendt, after World War II, she would go and she'd interview Nazis. Uh, and I mean, these are some of the most evil people ever, right? We can all agree to that. And she found that instead of being these sort of diabolical villains in lava lairs stroking bald cats and going ha that they were boring, ordinary, socially inept men. She interviewed Eichmann. She said he was so shallow, he just kept repeating the same phrases over and over again. He couldn't even think on his feet at all. He just had his, had his talking points and he stuck to it and he just kept repeating it and he couldn't answer questions when challenged. It was too much processing for him. She was amazed that somebody could accomplish so much evil and seem to be so dumb. And so she wrote a book about it called The Banality of Evil. And it scared people because we wanted to believe in a sense in the greatness of evil that it was somehow extra ordinary when in fact it was routine and common and just the way it was. One Nazi hunter ended up catching up with uh, one of these guards in Argentina years later. Caught him on the street, came up to him and uh, walked up to him and said, are you so-and-so? The guy said, looked around, was like, huh? Yeah. And he goes, you killed my father. And the guy stops and goes, well, who's your father? And, he explain, and the guy explains, he goes, well, wasn't he Jewish? That was his response. Not, uh-oh, you're going to get me. It's like, well, of course I killed him. Yeah, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Routine, ordinary, uneventful evil. 
What should shock us about Jesus on the cross that doesn't shock us as much anymore is just how routine it was. And I think we pastors, uh, preachers, filmmakers, we worry. We worry that the cross has lost its punch, right? That by making it into jewelry and foam crafts, you know, we forget about the, the cruelty and the horror of it. And I share that worry with everybody else. It's why I said no one year to the cross-shaped lollipops from Oriental Trading Company. They can schlock a cross on anything. They don't have the, they don't have the, 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 the second guessing I do. But in the reaction to that, we make films that show just this massive spectacle of horror and always with crowds to watch and react, hoping it will shake us out of our complacency. But what would be more accurate would be to show it for what it really was, ordinary evil. It was cruel. It was horrific by design. It was degrading and humiliating. It was tended to be a public spectacle. But if you would have been there and panned your camera around, all the whippings and the chantings and the poundings and the nailings, you would have seen a few looky-loos, some ordinary people going about their days, soldiers not emoting because this is just another shift, city dwellers walking on as Jesus carried his cross, because after all, I have work to do and time is money. What should shock us also was how quick the trial was, how easily he was convicted, how little process he was given, how efficiently they got it done, and how complacent everybody was except for Mary Magdalene and his mom. What, what should convict us when we look at the cross is how unshocking violence can be and how easily we can watch as innocent people get chewed up in the system. The ordinariness of evil is the scandal. And this is the journey we take to the cross, to allow ourselves to be shocked at the horror and the lack of horror that got God himself killed. Amen.